Shall we begin? Would that be? We might as well get underway. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Alan Campbell is my name. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. The subject this evening is spiritual endeavor. Isn't that right? And there's a subtitle there which I keep forgetting is Oh dear, anybody got a brochure? It's something about making efforts. Are you making the the effort or an effort or are you making any effort? Oh dear. <laughs> we've all got here tonight, so we've done Are you making any effort? Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Wow. Right. Okay. Well, let's see what sort of efforts we need to make, I suppose. That's really what the talk is about. Okay. So, normal format, is that all right? But I have something prepared. So perhaps I present that, which I think is perhaps an hour or thereabouts, and then we can have a break, cup of coffee or tea, and please come back. <laughs> and we can take the conversation further. Great, okay. Well, the suggestion is that the first question that we really need to look at, ladies and gentlemen, is what is man? In truth, what is man? And so I have one or two quotations here that I'd like just to put before us as a sort of a, a backdrop. Corinthians, we hear this, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Well, we're the temple of this living God. Is that how we ordinarily see ourselves? My oh my. The Katha Upanishad, some may be familiar with reading the various translations of the Upanishads, but the Katha Upanishad says this, the intelligent self is neither born nor does it die. It did not originate from anything, nor did anything originate from it. It is birthless, eternal, undecaying, and ancient. It's not injured, even when the body is killed. It does not kill, nor is it killed. And again it goes on, as the Upanishads can do, it says, that which is soundless, touchless, colorless, tasteless, odorless, undemanding, eternal, without beginning, without end, and ever constant. So, no doubt we regularly view ourselves as ever constant. Hmm? unchanging, eternal. Definitely some statements as a backdrop, aren't they? The wise man is said to have a threefold nature of consciousness, knowledge and bliss. I'm sure we're familiar with that. This means he is ever conscious, all-knowing, and blissful, undoubting, never fearful, ever peaceful 
and free. Again, another quotation, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, do we ordinarily consider ourselves perfect? Perhaps we sometimes, we, well, we all often do, we always actually see a newborn baby as perfect, don't we? I mean, they are just perfection. But what happens by the time uh, it becomes a teenager? <laughs> Somewhere that perfection has slipped away. <laughs> That's our view, isn't it? Teenagers aren't perfect. <laughs> We're not perfect. <laughs> that becomes the view. Well, despite what we may think, we are told that the spirit is not born and does not die, and so on, as we've heard. Now let's consider this. You cannot be what you are not. Isn't that so? You cannot be what you are not. Gold is always gold, despite what shapes it's made into. Gold can never be other than what it is. Whether it becomes a ring, or a bracelet, or a necklace, the gold remains the same, despite its shape. The shape doesn't change its substance at all. Similarly, you and I can never be other than what we are, despite our shape. <laughs> our substance remains the same. So, this substance is perfect, complete, never in any difficulty, never falls into bondage, is ever free, beyond fear and doubt. If we can accept that, that this substance, our substance, your substance, my substance, is ever free, beyond doubt, beyond fear, constant, unchanging, all-knowing, ever blissful and free. If we could accept that, that this is true, that man is in fact this spirit, and he's not his shape, he's not his weight, his height, his color, he's not anything to do with the body, then we could ask, what is this spiritual endeavor for? There would be no need for any effort if we could accept what the scriptures say. You cannot work on that which is already complete. When you've completed a job, it's finished. You don't have to work on it. So there is no work, there is no endeavor needed where perfection, completeness, 
fulfillment is known. However, all the scriptures tell us that not only are we perfect, they all also confirm the need for spiritual endeavor. So the question must arise, why is this? How can this be so? That on the one hand, the scriptural authorities and wise tell us man is pure, perfect and complete, all-knowing, ever-blissful, eternal, doesn't die, is not born, and at the same time, or also, they tell us there is a need in man for spiritual endeavor, to discover himself. Why is this so? And we will have a look at that this evening. That's exactly what we're going to look at. If we could accept, however, that man is perfect, then clearly there is nothing to do. We could go home. We wouldn't come here in the first place. We would have no interest. However, there is this situation with man. And let's take the example of eating. We know we've eaten enough and we still eat a little more. Perhaps we know we have overeaten and we still don't accept the fact that we know we're o we've overeaten and we keep eating. So there is this faculty in the mind, isn't there, of knowing and also of denying what we know. Are you f familiar with that? Good. Yes, this is something that we do. We know, but then we deny it. And I'm afraid this is the situation we're in. We tend to know, at times, the truth about ourselves, and when we do, everything's fine. But there's also that faculty there which denies the truth about myself. And I'm afraid the majority of mankind is involved in this uh, denial. That's where we find ourselves, isn't it, most of the time. So the need for spiritual endeavor, this need which the scriptures say is needed for man, this need for spiritual endeavor arises due to the mind, due to the fickleness of the mind. Our minds, as we all know, have this ability to remember and to forget. The mind can remember the truth about man and it can forget it. When we forget where we've put our keys, for example, when you go home at night, they disappear out of your hand or your pocket. When we forget where we've put them, what do we do? We tend to look for them. We know that they exist and we know where we might have left them and so we begin to look. They're not there, we begin to imagine where else we might have put them and we search here and there with these various images of where they might be. You're back up in the bedroom, they're not there, back down to the hall table. So you're just looking around and then we find them. But there's this mental process goes on of imagining where they might be, thinking where they might be. 
and you can often visualize where you think you've seen them. When the mind forgets what we are, it also scurries around trying to remember where it left itself. The mind will not accept a non-existence. I know that I am, I know I exist, but what am I? So when we have forgotten what I am, the mind begins to think up what I am, what I might be, what I could be, and creates an image of this thing that I could be. And then begins to say, I am a man, I am a woman, I am a painter, I am a father, I am a doctor, I am a farmer, I am tall, I am dull, I am clever, I am witty, I am unattractive whatever it says. And this thing that I say I am, this image in the mind of this existence, which is other than what I truly am, is always limited. It's limited in lots of ways and subject generally to all kinds of duality. It's subject to pleasure and to pain, to highs and lows, happiness, sorrow, the whole world of opposites comes into play and generally is in direct contradiction to the truth about myself. Good company, we're all familiar with the book, page two. I'm just going to quote from it. Shantananda Saraswati has this to say. He says, all this binds man in little boundaries. These are the limits. All this binds man in little boundaries, and little boundaries give him only little bliss. The self, being the absolute, could not be satisfied with such little bliss, and this is why there is a constant search for more bliss, more truth, and more consciousness. This search makes men overactive, and run amok, which is followed by troubles, anxieties, conflicts and discomforts. And the real purpose is completely lost. That's familiar enough, isn't it? Who here doesn't run amok from time to time? <laughs> That's what it feels like, doesn't it? The real purpose is lost. When we lose the real purpose of our existence, so when we're not happy, we go looking for it. When in this state we are searching for what we are, we are under ignorance. And in the state of ignorance, we will never find the truth. So life becomes difficult and complicated. Believing we are the body, we seek out the pleasurable we tend to avoid the unpleasant and the painful. Perhaps believing we are the mind, we seek out information on all sorts of subjects. 
and think then that we know something. Believing perhaps that we are the heart and its feelings, we seek out relationships and all the time we are missing the eternal. This cycle of life and death goes on until memory is awakened in what can be called by a good impulse. And there are many ways to come to a good impulse. It could be a good book, a teacher, a school, an instant in one's life. All these, or any one of them, can stir memory. Memory is awakened in the individual which has laid latent there. Something long forgotten and this makes us realize a move to make it real, to experience and to live in a bigger world. There's a 17th century Dutch philosopher, I don't think we have to go back that far, but <laughs> that's the quotation I have for you here. Spinoza. It's a, a longish quotation, but there's various steps in it. He explains this awakening, really, and the consideration of whether to make a move or not quite well. After experience had taught me, that the common occurrences of ordinary life are vain and futile. And I saw that all the objects of my desire and fear were in themselves nothing good or bad, save in so far as the mind was affected by them. I at length determined to search out whether there was not something truly good and communicable to man by which his spirit might be affected to the exclusion of all other things. Whether there was anything through the discovery and acquisition of which I might enjoy continuous and perfect gladness forever. So just that beginning to awaken he's describing there, isn't he? That just awakening, is there something that isn't going to be so fickle as pleasure and pain, as good and bad. But something whereby the acquisition of which I might enjoy continuous and perfect gladness forever. I say that I at length determined because at first sight it seemed ill-advised to renounce things in the possession of which I was assured for the sake of what as yet was uncertain. So a little doubt there, yes? I mean, I'm fairly sure of what I have, and I'm a little unsure of what might be the next step. A little doubt about stepping into the dark, really. And yet he's wondering, is there something that's more permanent there? So I therefore turned over in my mind whether it might be possible to come to this new way, or at least to the certitude of its existence, without changing my usual way of life, which I'd often attempted before, but in vain. For the things that commonly happen in life, and are esteemed among men as the highest good, as witnessed by their works, can be reduced to these three, 
riches, fame, and lust. And by these the mind is so distracted that it can scarcely think of any other good. And that's where much of the common life is spent, isn't it? Searching riches, fame, and lust. That's how we commonly go about our lives. So he had a good look at how normal behavior is. He goes on, but love directed towards the eternal and the infinite feeds the mind with pure joy. So he's discovered quite a bit saying that. Love directed towards the eternal and the infinite feeds the mind with pure joy and is free from all sadness. Wherefore it is greatly to be desired and to be sought after with the whole mind. And although I could perceive this quite clearly in my mind, I could not at once lay aside all greed, lust and honor. So he could see this the, directing the mind towards the eternal, directing the heart towards the eternal, was good. Sorrow faded away. The concerns and the ups and downs of life tended to fade away. He was free from all sadness and filled with pure joy is what he's saying. And yet, uh-huh. I could not lay aside all greed, lust, and honor. But one thing I could see, and that was that so long as the mind was turned upon this new way, it was deflected and seriously engaged therein, which was a great comfort to me. For I saw that those evils were not such as would not yield to remedy. And though at first these intervals were rare and lasted but a short while, yet afterwards the true good became more and more evident to me and these intervals more frequent and of longer duration. So one thing he could see was that when the mind was turned towards the eternal, then it was deflected away from the things of the world, from these other things. That was possible, and that was a great comfort to him, to realize that, that it's possible. And he also saw that the evils, as he saw them, would yield. They didn't have to dominate the mind and heart all the time. They would yield. And the intervals and the frequency became longer. So that was Spinoza. So the suggestion is, and I propose, that our minds have been deflected from the truth about ourselves. However, as Spinoza says, they can be deflected back again, away from these false images in the mind, Before we look at spiritual endeavor and its journey, let's just look a little more at 
life as it is familiar to us, I suggest. Life, we could say, when we've forgotten ourselves. Life under ignorance. When we have forgotten what in truth we are, what is life like? Well, firstly, we tend to think we're the body, don't we? It is what I am. I mean, who in this room does not think he's human? Who does not think that we're either male or female? So life is lived to give the body some pleasure and to avoid pain. So eating is pleasurable and being hungry is painful, to be avoided at all costs. Sleeping is pleasurable, so we tend to lie there a little longer perhaps than might be good for us, but it's very enjoyable. Generally, we tend to indulge the body in the excesses in whatever way we can, and life becomes centered around the body, doesn't it? So that it's food, it's clothing, and it's health, and it's medicines, and it's exercise, and it's looks, and it's behavior become important issues to us. Thinking we are the body tends to lead to excess or deprivation. Having done one, we go to balance up with the other. I mean, I've met a number of people who don't take alcohol in November. I've never heard of it before till this year. Maybe it's a new fad. Quite a lot of people don't seem to take alcohol this November. And it's only in order to give the system a chance for what's happening in December. <laughs> I've never come across it before. So this is what we tend to do. We overeat and then we diet. Or we go on a binge at the weekend and then we fast all week and go to the gym and so on. Excesses and then deprivation. <laughs> Secondly, the mind under ignorance. When we have forgotten what we are, the mind tends to be in the dark. We don't see what's going on in the mind clearly. It can be confused and suffer from doubt easily. It can be prone to procrastination. It may have false ideas and readily make assumptions where it's too lazy to make a full and proper inquiry. And this may lead to mistakes. So the mind may suffer also from rigidity and can be often what we call narrow-minded. This confused state of the mind will prevent body from acting and can make this body-mind machine pretty useless. Hamlet's words come to mind when he says, the native hue of resolution is sickly door with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard their currents turn away and lose the name of action.
What a beautiful way to put it. You just think too much so you don't act. So, like the body, we underuse the mind. We may jump to conclusions without inquiry. We may falsely judge people and events. We buy things we don't need. We may enter the wrong job or profession based on an underutilization of the mind. Or alternatively, we may use the mind too much. It may never stop. It may never get a rest. When we've time on our hands, what do we do? When we're a little early for a meeting, or when someone rings you and says, I can't be there in the traffic, and it's another half an hour at least, what do we do when we've nothing to do? Start thinking. Do we not fill our minds with thoughts? We fill the space, do we not, with thinking, thought after thought. And most of the thoughts, they're the same as the ones we had yesterday, aren't they? Very often they're very similar at least, and they might even have a pattern. So we have the same thoughts again that we had yesterday and the vast majority of these, where do they go? Nowhere. <laughs> yes, they really need nowhere. Enough about the mind under ignorance before we're too depressed. <laughs> the heart under ignorance. The emotional realm will be prone, will it not, to ups and downs. Our hearts will be subject to various degrees of fear, intrepidation or excitement, or worry or despondency. You know, the bus arrives on time and the traffic lights are green and we're happy. The coffee's lukewarm, the car won't start, this day's a washout. It's dreadful. Up and down. When children carry on like that, we think they're immature. If they want a Mars bar and they can't have it, oh, and they start crying, we think, oh, they'll grow out of this when they're a little older. <laughs> think of how immature and overreactive our hearts are with the ups and downs that they go through every day. How mature can a heart be when it gets irate if someone's a couple of minutes late? When another car cuts in in front of you? Outraged at the cheek, what? <laughs> so this heart in ignorance and its feelings can become very important to us. That people don't understand really how strongly we feel about these things and they don't really appreciate or value our feelings enough. All this I think is familiar enough to us, isn't it? So recognize this behavior in ourselves when we see it. 
recognize it simply. You needn't judge it, you needn't criticize it. Don't reject it, just simply recognize it as behavior under ignorance. It's just the way things are when we have forgotten what we truly are. And we believe this antic of the mind and heart as real. So let's move back now to this topic, spiritual endeavor. Given this is the state of play of every day, how are we to move forward? What is this spiritual endeavor for? Well, we can say that there are two stages in this work. Firstly, there is the refinement of the being. There's a refinement of this instrument of body, mind and heart. That's the first step. So there needs to be a refinement so that this confusion and darkness and excess is removed. So this refinement takes place of the body, mind and heart system. And secondly, there is a realization of what I am, of who I am. The spiritual endeavor per se, so let's deal with the first aspect, this refinement. And ask ourselves, if we refer back to the statement from Corinthians, know that you are the temple of the living God. So what kind of a house would the Lord live in? This temple, what kind of a temple would you expect it to be? And I suggest that just like when a friend or relation or a guest is coming to stay in your house, you clean it up a bit. You make an effort to present the best. So too, we need to clean up this temple, this body, mind and heart, so that we may fully experience ourselves, our true self, which dwells therein. So it just needs a little bit of cleaning up, just like you would your own house when a guest was coming to stay. So the body will need some measure, measure in all things, food, sleep, exercise, to sustain it as healthy and vigorous. And through the application of measure in the body, we're freed from the tendencies over-caring for the body. So that when it is full of health and vitality, it may serve us well and doesn't take undue time and consideration being cared for. Secondly, the application of measure assists in the realization that I am not this body. Rather, it is an instrument for my use. And it needs to be maintained in a proper manner, which enables it to perform the functions that it needs to do efficiently, effectively, and without undue effort. It's not the be-all and end-all. 
that it can become under ignorance. In the mind, we need to do a bit of damp dusting there as well, clean it up a bit, put on the light so that we can begin to see what's going on in the mind, to see what thoughts are there and to bring some knowledge and reason into its working. We need to see how to use the mind. Do we excessively think about things and thus paralyze action? Do we generate confusion in the mind? We need to see if we are working on assumptions and prejudices or on principle. We need to exercise decision. We need to look at the decisions we have made that are directing our lives to see if they're valid in accordance with our true nature and expressing knowledge, truth and consciousness leading to purity, perfection and completeness. We do also need to train the mind to enjoy stillness, to dip it into stillness. Clarity, objectivity, allowing it to be alert and to concentrate and to be objective. To dissolve what is false in the mind and what is rigid, what is past and no longer relevant what is not conducive to happiness and freedom and to let them go. And in its place feed the mind with knowledge and principle which we can study from the scriptures. Really to let the mind develop a universal ability to consider concepts and ideas applicable to all, of a universal nature. That would clean up the mind, wouldn't it? For the heart, designed to love all things, the need is to allow it to grow unselfishly. So the divisions that it holds in the world are dissolved. Service to one's fellow man without any reward from oneself begins to develop devotion and open the heart to the needs of those around us and begins to reduce our collection of preferences and judgments of other people and events and begins to dissolve selfishness and egoism. We need our capacity to love so that instead of just loving wife, child, dog and your favorite football team, we can love everyone. We can love mankind. So you begin to treat everyone as though they were a member of your family. We become no longer indifferent to the needs and sufferings of others but are able to exercise compassion and can begin to practice a generosity 
a generosity with ourselves, a generosity with our time, our attention, our love, understanding, a generosity with our energy so that others may enjoy our existence. So we begin to develop a universal heart capable of care and consideration for all. And the development of the heart can happen through practicing and working with the virtues. Humility, modesty, innocence, patience, steadfastness, absence of egoism, unattachment, equanimity in pleasure and pain, success and failure. Oh, <laughs> that's a nice one, isn't it? Equanimity in pleasure and pain, success and failure. Well, that sets the goalpost, doesn't it? That sets the measure for the heart to be steady even when you fail. To be the same as when you've succeeded. Gosh, but it's, what a fantastic measure. So there we have the body, some measure needed for the body, some measure needed for the mind, and some measures needed for the heart to prepare this temple for the presence of the Lord so that your true self may shine in every moment of the day. One thing essential really in this cleansing, in this spiritual endeavor is the company and friendship of like-minded people. Those working in this way. This company is essential because no one, not one of us in this room, can do this sort of work on our own. So the company is an essential ingredient in this endeavor. Our work on body, mind and heart can be summed up as a universalization of our nature. So we may become universal man and woman, living, though not bound, by an individual body, mind and heart. Living but not bound by body, mind and heart. So all of this endeavor, this work, refines the being and this, as I've said, is the first phase. And when a certain amount of refinement has taken place, the being, the body, mind and heart, become more capable, more confident and more efficient. And then the mind begins to remember more and more. It begins to become aware and to acknowledge more of what it has forgotten. The mind, you could say, begins to sense or discern a 
substratum or a presence, a peace which is always there underlying all movement and sound and by which they are all supported. There's this trick, isn't there? If I hold this page for you, what do you see? Print. Print. Thank you very much. That's what we see, isn't it? We see a lot of letters, uh, words and letters. It's said, however, that 95% of the page is white. And it's like that. 95% of our being can be at rest. Can be resting in the presence of yourself while the manifestation takes place on the surface. The movement, the noise takes place on the surface. So this dawning, that there is this substratum, this underlying whiteness <laughs> beneath and yet supporting all the movement and intelligence and effort and speech and sound and creativity. So gradually the mind begins to acknowledge that this is the case, that there is this substratum which may be accessed regularly, continuously. Begins the second phase of spiritual endeavor. So this cleaning up is the first phase and then there is this acknowledgement, very naturally, an acknowledgement that 95% of the page is white. That there is this substratum of yourself underlying all movement, supporting all movement, supporting all creativity. And this begins the second phase. Because the question arises quite naturally, which am I? I mean, which am I? Am I this 95%? Am I this from which all the sound arises? From which all creativity comes? from which all movement arises, from which all love arises, or am I the fickle movements on the surface? Am I the pleasure and pain, the fear and the delight? Which am I? So this question arises quite naturally as the second phase the moments, glimpses of this underlying substratum in everyday life, in everyday events, 
tends to come and go at first, to appear and to fade. However, as these moments repeat and their occurrence becomes more regular, from being somewhat nonplussed by them or somewhat skeptical, uncertain, we may gradually gain a confidence in them and allow these moments to lengthen and to deepen and to enjoy the naturalness of them. The wise tell us that there comes a time when the mind remembers what it has forgotten and never forgets. So this would be the end, we could say, of spiritual endeavor, which we commonly term full realization. And when you live there, you live as you are, a free man or woman in bliss, fearless, and at one with all. Shantananda has described this in a conversation with Mr. McLaren. This short passage I took from a, an 87 conversation. He said, the ultimate mark and use of knowledge of the self is in efficiency and uniqueness of action. Detachment in its origin and completion while emotionally bound to nothing. Peace is retained during the procedure and bliss is experienced all along. So the ultimate mark and use of knowledge of the self is in efficiency and uniqueness of action, detachment in its origin and completion while emotionally bound to nothing. Peace is retained during the procedure and bliss is experienced all along. There are one or two other points I'd like to address, if I may. And the first is meditation, which clearly comes into the efforts which we make to our spiritual endeavor. The practice of meditation dissolves the traits in the heart and mind. So it's part of the cleaning up process. It cleans up the heart and mind so they reflect more truly our true nature. In the fullness of meditation, there is this undoubting experience of the fullness of our true self. There is that complete acknowledgement that we are not the body or any of its senses, that we're not any thought in the mind or any movement in the mind, and similarly that we're not any feeling or movement of the heart or that we're not anything to do with the ego or that separate personality. And so there is that direct experience of a limitless being. And this is a very valuable and uh, useful practice, the meditation in this regard. There is a need for an earnestness and a fortitude Shantananda tells this story of there being a temple at 12,000 feet high in the mountains. People start their journey and get tired after 10 miles, but can't give up or lose interest. They simply keep going and surmount all difficulties and climb the entire mountain to reach the temple. Now the greatest thing, he says, in this endeavor 
in that effort is the knowledge of the temple that it is there that it does exist the rest is a little toil and patience every day all succeed he says who keep going and no one is heard of giving up any idea of defeat is against the honor of the self and should never be entertained interest in one's work is an aspect of the self don't lose it just keep going so for the spiritual aspirant despondency is forbidden this would simply cause us to abandon the journey and this is forbidden so this earnestness this fortitude is needed you never give up that's not to say you'll not be challenged you are challenged on the way not just from outside but even from your own system you may be shocked at your behavior you may be amazed at the thoughts which go through the mind you may be amazed at what makes you angry you may never think that you are such a person like that so you will be challenged but you do not give up so may i read this passage from good company i read a little more of it if i may now just to put it into a fuller context the absolute is truth consciousness and bliss and the creation is for bliss it is a play and the play is only for enjoyment human beings are also the absolute and include everything the absolute has men are self-truthful self-conscious full and self-blissful the absolute creates and enjoys without getting involved only as a witness but man prefers to enjoy as a doer and not as a witness this claim is followed by the duality of wanted and got it all this binds man in little boundaries and little boundaries give him only little bliss the self being the absolute could not be satisfied with such little bliss and this is why there is a constant search for more bliss for more truth and more consciousness and the search makes men overactive and run amok which is followed by troubles anxieties conflicts and discomforts the real purpose is completely lost only if men could see that they have nothing to do nothing to claim nothing to achieve in this already complete and blissful creation they would begin to enjoy and also fulfill the purpose if only only if men could see that they have nothing to do nothing to claim nothing to achieve 
in this already complete and blissful creation, they would begin to enjoy and also fulfill the purpose. So all this endeavor is really to realize that there is nothing to do. The irony of it all is that at the end of it all, we are one. We are free and we have nothing to do, nowhere to go, for we are the truth, the consciousness and the bliss. So there is this work which this evening we call spiritual endeavor to realize this truth about ourselves, the truth about man. The essence of spiritual endeavor is not about achieving anything new, but rather in dismantling our beliefs. As Jesus said to us, become as little children. He didn't ask us to become old men and women. So this is the work, this is the real work of man and the reason that you and I are here. One further quotation, if I may, from the Mathnawi. He has the work who has become desirous of good and for that work's sake is not identified with any other work. The rest are like children playing these few days till the departure at nightfall. When any drowsy one awakes and springs up, him the nurse imagination beguiles, saying, Go to sleep, my darling, for I will not let anyone disturb thy slumber. But you, if you are wise, will tear up your slumber by the roots, like the thirsty man who heard the sound of running water. Good time for refreshment, I'm just thinking. <laughs> well, this is our work, ladies and gentlemen, and lovely to meet you this evening. Thank you very much. We're being recorded this evening. And so the questions or comments or whatever you'd like to say are also going to be recorded, which is fantastic, isn't it? So you need just to hold the microphone, if you would. And if it is a question or if you're asking me to respond, hold on to it just in case you've got a follow-up. And then when the issue is dealt with, if you'd hand the microphone back and the next person can have it. Great. So it is really over to you. Anything you'd like to say or ask or pursue, that's probably a better word, any line of inquiry that we could pursue, following on from what's been presented. <laughs> you mentioned that we had to cleanse the mind, the body and the heart, but it seems to me that the mind it's not divided into three equal sections. It's as if the mind is very dominant and 
That's what it seems to me. Yes. Is that so? <laughs> well, yes, that can be so indeed. Then it's the mind that needs most work in terms of just bringing it into shape, as it were. But then body and heart also need attending to. So that generosity, for example, can really be something which is a practical proposition. So the heart can grow. The heart can grow. It's naturally universal. And it tends to be the ideas in the mind that limit it, in fact. So as the mind is worked on, as you say, it's probably the most dominant. And when it is the most dominant, then it needs balancing. And that will allow then the heart to grow. There may be a great cautiousness in the mind. You may need to throw caution to the wind. And just go for it. <laughs> you know, there can be that cautiousness in heart and mind, can't there? That sort of keeps things within limits. That's what caution's doing, isn't it? It's keeping this philosophy, in, you know, as an interest. We keep it a little bit out of our lives. We let it in a little, but we also keep it out due to a sort of caution dip our toe in the water by all means, but we're not going to make phone calls from the ocean. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to swim all day. But we may need to become a little more reckless with regards to our spiritual endeavor. Recklessness is allowed in the spiritual realm, we'll be glad to hear. Yes, people of Limerick become reckless in your spiritual endeavor. <laughs> That'd be nice, wouldn't it? The child be more like a child. Yes, reckless. <laughs> yes. As you get older, you more and more years away from when you were a child. Yes. Probably need to remind ourselves what it would like to be a child. Yes. Watch them in the streets. Watch them play. Watch them in action. Watch how they watch. Listen to what they say, see the way they say it. Sometimes they're very clear and crisp observation. And sometimes they speak very succinctly what they've observed. So, yes, exactly. Observe how the children live and move and what they do. But you're right, they seldom move about cautiously. And I mean, at times we have to tell them to shut up. You can't say that in your granny's house, you know, or something. Because they're being just straightforwardly sort of truthful. So the adult needs the childlike approach. But there's that experience there as well. So the freedom of the adult, like the freedom of the child, is very beautiful. But it just does have that little bit of experience with it. It has the experience of life with it. Are you suggesting maybe at your next lecture you'll bring a few children along? <laughs> I hope they'll all arrive. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Next time I live in Limerick, I look forward to meeting them all <laughs> in this room. <laughs> yes, they come as little children. Very good. <laughs> if meditation is for the mind, diet and exercise is for the body, how does one attend to the heart? Mm. Meditation is mind and heart, really. And the heart will naturally grow, naturally expands, when it's not limited by the ideas in the mind. In a way, our natural generosity of being, of spirit, is curtailed by the limits that we put on it with our minds. Well, I'm sure it'll do, you know. There's so many ways, so many little phrases we have that limit our generosity. And those limits are ideas. So the meditation will cleanse the mind, assists in cleansing. There's nothing wrong with reason also, excuse me, I mean, that's a silly thing to say, there's nothing wrong. I mean, reason will also cleanse the mind, observation will cleanse the mind as you observe what you're saying and how unreasonable it is or how untruthful it is then you can naturally begin to cleanse your ideas so both ways work on the mind our sounds are creative in the beginning was the word so our sounds that we inwardly have and listen to much of the day are creative they are creating the problems we have. So these creative sounds are limiting the heart, which is naturally of a universal nature. So once those sounds stop operating and limiting the heart, the heart will grow, will come to its natural state. And that lovely smile will be there all the time. <laughs> exactly. Very nice. Yes, yeah, which is a natural state, a blissful state, naturally happy for no reason at all. It's just your very birthright, blissful. Yes, that okay? Thank you, yes, thank you. <laughs> Billy will have it there, go on. Yes, I think he's ready. <laughs> Sorry. There's complication in the need to further endeavor the programs that there's no need to do anything. Could you say a bit more about that? Yes. I can, in that there is a need to do something. That's just all there is, because we are in a state of forgetfulness. When you've forgotten where your keys are, what do you have to do? You have to find them. And you have to get up off the chair and look for them. So, you know your keys are around. You know your keys are in the house. But what good is that? You have to get up and look for them. Because you need them in your hand to put them into the car. Now it's like that. We can read about it, and we know the self is ever there. The witnessing is ever present. 
but that is not our continuous experience. The scriptures say it is, that's the state. I know my keys are there, but I haven't got them to use. The scriptures say the self is there. Am I experiencing that? Can I honestly say that that is how life is lived? As the wise describe it. And the answer is no. So we need to get up, just like we've got to get up and look for the keys, we've got to get up and do the work. So that endeavour is needed. That work is needed. Despite the theory that the self is ever-present. To turn that into reality, which is what practical philosophy is about, to turn that into your everyday situation so that truth, consciousness and bliss manifests from you without any claim for the good of all that work is needed and that's the work really that's, that's what the school is for and a group such as you've got is invaluable invaluable. Each group that's operating, and, and not just in Limerick, but all uh, throughout the country, wherever it is, without that group you cannot do it. You know, the conversation would be entirely different if I was on my own tonight. <laughs> without a group discussing the material, there really isn't opportunity to overcome your own sanskara. Whereas with the group, with that good company, like-minded people interested in discovering what they really are, it is possible. And it's an essential ingredient. So the groups that you have, you know, in, in the light of what I'm saying, we may not value those groups to the extent that I'm suggesting. So to increase the value that you place on your group would be very useful. So you never hold up the group by being late. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, Billy? <laughs> but just, you know, just, just care and consideration for uh, the like-minded people and for the value that you would place on the group. Yeah. Does that help with this conundrum that you're mentioning? Yeah, it starts again though that when you say it's going something to do, it's kind of on a different level than... There is nothing to do when you get there. And when you get there, you realize there was nothing to do all the time. But yet, <laughs> you have to get there. You have to find the keys. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I would suggest that do we need to realize the perfection of the imperfect, actually? If I may expand yes, a little yeah, on yes, it, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of a quotation from Julian of Norwich, right. who was told implicitly that all shall be well, and all shall be well, 
and all manner of thing shall be well. Yes. So that in reality there is no such thing as chaos anyway. No. Because there is a perfection. Yes. Within chaos that makes that chaos perfect. Right. And similarly there is nothing imperfect. Yes. But that needs to be realized. The perfection does need realizing. When it is seen as perfect, as the scripture says, this is perfect, that is perfect. Perfect comes from perfect. Take perfect from perfect and the remainder is perfect. So this perfection is there. The only question is, is that what's seen? There isn't imperfection. Imperfection doesn't exist. That's right. That's the theory. Is it right? Is up to us, each as individuals. That's where that little bit of work is needed. Yes. Yeah. To experience it for ourselves. Yes. And for there to be no imperfection. For the mind not to be critical. For there not to be wishing it to be other than it is. For all those activities that go on in the mind not to go on, but simply allow the simple acknowledgement of the perfection. And that we are in, in fact the beginning and the end of the journey. Exactly, mm. but that's known at the end. There is this work in between, there is this endeavor in between. As long as we see this imperfection, then there's work to be done. Because we're not seeing what the scriptures say. So the spiritual endeavor is needed to realize in our everyday experience that that is perfect. So there is this bit of work, and it's a lovely way to describe it again, it, it's the same in another way. There is this perfection. What does we see? Is it the perfection or is there something different? And it's that bit of difference that we all have, individually different, that's where the need for spiritual endeavor comes in. When it is all perfect, then that's the end of the road. That is the journey's end. And then it's just like the beginning. It is perfect. But that is something that you and I need to realize. And that's where the endeavor comes in. That's where the little bit of work comes in. Study of the scriptures and all the rest of it. Yes. Is that, is that helpful? Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah. So, we are the universe. Yes. We create the universe. Yes. But in turn, we are also several universes. Yes. And... But you're there and you think I'm here. I mean, that's the problem. No. You don't think I'm here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this most of us kind of dip in and out. Okay. Of. Yes. Yeah. There we are. You touch the universal and you come back out. Yes. Yes. Excellent. So that's, yeah. that's valid. Yes. So there is the need for this cleansing, for this work to go on until you don't come out. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Isn't that right? Until you dip in and there you are. Yes, there are these moments of freedom and, and, clarity. and clarity and bliss and marvellous. So, you know, as it were, the direction is being confirmed. The road is being made clear and there's confirmation that this is the way forward. So the endeavour is to refine that even further so that these forgettings slip away. The judgments no longer arise. Because in one, what is there to change? Okay? Yes, thank you. Wonderfully expansive. Yes, exactly. Thank you very much. So, if a critical mass of people in the world attained realization, it would be a, a pretty, a pretty uh, radically changed world then? Yes, I think it would. It definitely would have the, the potential to be radically changed. I don't know if you read much of what's been written or said about the Maharishi and his meditation movement. But he worked, I think, in various ways to try and find what percentages, you know, of people meditating would make a change and that sort of thing. So I'm sure there's something in that. I, I don't know anything about it myself, but I'm sure there's something in percentages that would be helpful. But what we do need is just to continue going, really. We need to keep moving ourselves. That's the key. And do what we can to help others. Yes. So never give up. So never give up, exactly. It's actually against the dignity of the self to give up. As he says, no one who keeps going will fail. Now the mind immediately kicks in and says, oh that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Gee, I, I've got a few obstacles here that, I mean, <laughs> you don't know what you're looking at here. So, <laughs> so we're all special cases. In our own minds, we're all special cases, but that isn't what he says. He says, everyone who keeps going succeeds. Well, that's very encouraging. It is, it's very encouraging, yes. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you lady here, please now. You spoke about uh, good company and keeping within like-minded people, but if you find yourself with people who may not be like-minded, surely, you know, I just, just don't know really, you know, how do you survive in that? Do you just stay with who you are? And if you're with people who think differently or are not interested in what you're interested in, how do you go and find people to suit you or in everyday life, you know? Yes, sure. Well, you may not in everyday life. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a fact of life today. Are you attending class in the school? Yeah. Yes. Well, there you have a group. And for you and for most of us, that may seem to be very natural and very sort of stumbled across. You know, sometimes we just stumble across a group of people. So we may not, at this point in, in time, you may or may not give it the value that I'm suggesting it's worth. 
but a group of people, of like-minded people, and despite what you hear in your group, let's call the group that gathers and discusses a piece of material like-minded. That is incredibly rare and of inestimable value to everyone in the group. Because a group works in a way that no individual can. And so each individual gains from everyone's contribution. Well, surely then it's, uh, you know, isn't it right that you mix with other people and that, you know, your safety is nearly saying then they're elitist, the group are in the school. Absol no, 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 please, that's within the group. Yeah. And that's once a week in yeah. term time. But outside of that, then you're on your own, aren't you? Yeah, and that's where you are mostly. And that's where you are mostly. And that's where you have the opportunity to work with the material that you've received and to observe what is going on. Yeah. Very often, initially, particularly in the early parts of the school, I found, that's all I can say, I found I didn't have the vocabulary, I didn't have the ability in my words and with my heart and my mind to put across what I wanted to say, but then it was I wanting to say it, and that isn't the best way either. Nor had I the ability, I think, to put across what was needed to be said. But gradually that changes. I think that's often the case. The question you're raising is just like that, that it feels you're a bit lonely and the, the friends and people and society that you work with and move with, there may not be any particular interest you know, in what you might want to talk about in terms of philosophy. I know I, I bored people to tears. <laughs> and I was very passionate about it and they thought I was wired. Thank you. <laughs> Some still do. I know, I know. Yeah, thank you. Does that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. So I think what we are really speaking of is like-minded people meeting and discussing material as we do in the group in school. And that group is of inestimable value. The fruits of it are not in any way to be individually held on to. It is for the benefit of all. Those group meetings are exceptional. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, please. An extension, really, of that lady's question, first of all, yes, it is of great value meeting people in groups like that, but yes. how do you take it further afterwards, when you leave the group? When you leave the group, I don't know how you'd take it further. Do you mean when the group, when, when, when you just go away for the week? I mean in terms of keeping company with people of like-mindedness. Yes, what I'm not clear of is... The thinking. That further when you leave the class. When you leave the class. Yeah, without you, being a with great difficulty, yeah. I would have thought. With great difficulty. Now that of course raises the issue that people feel, oh, somehow I'm trapped, you know, with this group. But how can you be trapped when you can leave at any time? So it's evaluation judgment that's needed. 
as you value what you can give to the group and what you receive from the group, so this giving and receiving gets a value in your mind and heart. And that value then will help you choose whether you stay with the group or not. And I think it is difficult, if you leave, to continue that refinement. Absolutely. I don't think it can really be done without the help of others in a group. The real question I wanted to ask was the, the likes of Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and Maharaji, I think you mentioned, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name properly, but these people have stood out, if you like, from the crowd mm. and they're practicing a huge amount and more mm. of what you were saying there. Mm. You mentioned three components, tr uh, truth, consciousness and bliss. Yeah. They were doing far more than that. What were they doing that us Joe Soaps, for want of a better term, aren't? Well, I think each of them are meeting the need of mankind as they see it. And I think that is all, in a way, that the school is offering too is to meet the need as appropriately as possible for those who want to make some efforts to realize what in truth they are, what they really are. I don't know the details of each of the cases you mentioned, but Mandela clearly had an issue with the color and the political setup in South Africa. It appeared very naturally just to come at him and he responded. Similarly, Mother Teresa, my understanding there is that she was with the... Which order was she with? The Polish order, isn't it? Yeah, she was with... She was... I'm just sorry, the name is just... She was with one of the orders, anyway, that came from here, from Ireland, or that part of it was supported by Ireland, so she went out. And it was when out there that she saw the need to look after the people that were really in the gutter. She was teaching in a very nice middle-class, posh-ish sort of secondary school, and all these poor people were dying in the gutters outside on the street. And she asked her superiors, could she do this? Could she set up an order? And she had to write a letter, and she had to wait for the reply. And when she got the reply, then she set up her own system and, and went out and never stopped. So she played by the rules of her own organization that she was a member. Loretta, wasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't she one of the Loretta's? Yeah. So she played by the rules of that organization and responded appropriately both to the needs of her organization and to the needs that she sought in society. And obviously she was, yeah, an extraordinary lady. But she did take the lead. She saw the need and took the lead and delivered. Was given the go-ahead by her own organization and delivered. I think it's seeing the need and then the willingness to respond irrespective of what effects it has on 
on me as an individual. Does that help at all? Is that yes. helping with your real question, as you said? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much more to these individuals. But you're right in terms of knee, the same with Gandhi. Nelson said when he came out, he spent half his life battling white domination and half his life battling black domination, something to that effect. Yes. I don't have the right wording. Right. Similar. Yes. Very good. Um, and the same with Gandhi and what he battled. Yes. But yet they had far more. They had a base of goodness that was there aside from the need. And I'm trying to relate what you're saying in terms of need to we're all put on this earth to achieve something and find out what it is that we're put here for. Yes. But I, I sometimes feel you could be chasing your tail. Yes. In terms of trying to find out what you're put here yes, for. Yes, sure. Because there are so many things that we could be doing. Yes. How do you identify which needs you should be going after? Yes. It's a good question and all you can do at any one time is what's in front of you. And that's where your need is. Now, you know, when you bring in Gandhi and Mother Teresa and all these people, most of us are Joe Soaps. And that's where we are, Joe Soap. And we just deal with what's in front of us. That's where we are. But that's not to say that greeting someone at the hall door and making them a cup of tea can't be a blissful occasion. Or meeting someone on the street and just saying, how are you? Or buying a newspaper. Can't be blissful, fully conscious and blissful. And that's what the community needs. And so if you come out with your newspaper under your arm and Granny's there trying to find threepenny bit on the pavement or something, well, then you bend down and help her. So you just meet what's needed. And that may be the grand big plan for you and me. That's just the way it is. Yes, any, anybody else? I think this was one thing that Mother Teresa used to say, and it's just that she used to do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. Oh, very nice. I think, you know, maybe just to do, just as you were saying, yes. what comes to you, yes. do it extraordinarily well. Yes, and lovely. That's it. Just do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. Very nice. Beautiful. Lovely. Thank you very much. I'd like, first of all, to thank you for your lecture and um, perhaps put in a little bit from somebody who's left school ten years ago. Right. That I'm convinced that anybody who has been through the school, they benefit from it right throughout their lives because it gives them an awareness that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Very good. It adds to their happiness in life. I'm convinced of that. But I'd just like to ask you, would you agree that the conception of practical spiritualism in the world is a very confused one. When you compare it with practical spiritualism, which is love, kindness and tolerance in practice, compare that with the spiritualism which is confused with theology and the study of theology in different sects and different religions 
you find a lot of world figures who are steeped in the spiritual life, in inverted commas, and they're learned in the religious theologies, yet you wonder whether there's a practice, a spiritual practice there, which brings in these simple things like love, kindness, and tolerance, which, when it's practiced, also brings with it happiness. Yes, thank you. What comes to mind is love and reason. And we as philosophers, as lovers of wisdom, who wish to act wisely, and that's the only place really wisdom can be seen, is in action. So any fruit that there is of this work is seen in action. It isn't from any talking. It's seen in action. So the fruits of wisdom manifest in the physical world. And it's really through love, through the love with which whatever is carried out is carried out, through the knowledge, the reasonableness and the knowledge contained in the action. So it's this threefold coming together of the quality of love, the quality of knowledge or the reasonableness of what's being carried out at the time and how to do it, when to do it, and the action itself. So it's the purity of the love, the knowledge, and the action that really counts. And that's where the refinement of the being manifests. Yes, I Go would on. agree with that. And interestingly, um, Mandela, Gandhi, and Mother Mary Therese were mentioned. These were people who had terrible hardships in their life, had to confront terrible experiences. Yes. But I would say, thinking back on them, they were happy people. Yes. A lot happier than people who were a lot better off than they were yes. and in living in a much more comfortable life. Yes. One of the ladies quoted by Shantananda Saraswati, one day she was granted a boon by Krishna. He said, whatever you want, what would you like? And she said, please grant me adversity. And he said, no, what do you mean? Please grant me adversity, because only in adversity do I remember thee. So we've got the opportunity of, you know, not being in great adversity. But that behoves us all the more, does it not, to remember. Where did this goodness come from? So often when things aren't great, oh my God, you know, could you not do something? So we remember in a way. But how about the good times and the bad? I think possibly we all can have experiences where adversity at the time seemed a horrible thing and in hindsight turned out to be a huge benefit. Yes, it can be quite a cleansing time for the being. You're put through a, a serious scalding, you know, a fire, a cleansing fire and scalding. So it can be a very cleansing time, yes. 
and the school offers this voluntarily. <laughs> you know, without nature throwing a, a boulder in your way like that. Yeah. Yes. This can be done voluntarily without the horrors of nature being wrought upon you. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming. Lovely to meet you, and best of luck. Keep up the good work. Very good. Keep up the endeavor. Excellent. Thank you very much.